Hey y'all, this is Daniel, frequent guest, occasional editor. Just wanted to give you a heads up that there are some audio issues on this one. I was having connection problems that kind of fudge things up for everybody else. The Rewind takes these sorts of things very seriously. I have been punished very severely by Jernavoy, haven't eaten in weeks, slaving away in the Rewind dungeons, just trying to hash this out so that we don't have these sorts of issues going forward. Again, do apologize. Please bear with us because honestly, this episode one of our best. It's really up there, tied with, you know, everything else that we've ever done. And without further ado, on to the show. Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about American fiction. Joining me today, he really just wanted this to be a gangster movie. It's Daniel Lima. Daniel, how's it going? Oh, it's going beautifully. Thank you for inviting me. And also joining us, taking an indefinite leave of absence from his Arizona-based uh, plastic surgery practice, it's Josh Brown. Josh, how's it going? Doing well. Just be mistaken for Tyler Perry everywhere I go. <laughs> uh, American Fiction is a, uh, we can now say this, we're recording this tonight at the Oscar nominations. It's an Oscar-nominated film from first-time writer-director Cord Jefferson, who is uh, very, very, very well known as a TV writer who's been on the staff of a lot of really good TV shows like The Good Place and Succession and Watchmen, but he adapted it from a novel called Erasure by Percival Everett that uh, focuses on a professor and writer named uh, Thelonious Ellison, nicknamed Monk. A lot of his peers have had a lot more commercial success than him for writing books that kind of lean into racial stereotypes, whereas he gets he gets told he's not writing black enough. Uh, and one night in a drunken fit of rage after having been put on leave from his job, he just writes a novel that he thinks is that stereotype black novel on a whim. A lot going on there. The movie has its own satirical tone as it kind of, you know, comments on what it means for a guy to like, you know, struggle in this space with this um, with this specific kind of artistic expression. Josh, I guess I'll start with you. I'm curious. Uh, uh, it's, it's it's interesting because like I I have my own very particular thoughts on this, but I kind of like am like sometimes I try and like interject a couple opinions into that before I get to it. But like I really am kind of curious to hear uh, how what, how how you guys responded to this movie, Josh. Did you have like a a big takeaway from American fiction based on like uh, what you were kind of hoping to get out of it? Well, here's the thing: like um, there's two movies here, right? There's this family drama, and then there's this satire, right? And when I was watching the movie in like the opening 20 minutes or so, uh, when he's leaving the community college and he's hailing a taxi and it's the old classic black man can't like catch a cab. I knew we were kind of in like serious trouble when it came to the satire because I'm like, that's a pretty dated joke. Cause like in the year 2023, he would just get an Uber. And so like, on the one hand, I actually enjoyed the family drama of this movie because the ensemble is pretty good. While the satire, it I think, is somewhat held back by the world in which this movie is taking place in, which, which is the literary world, um, where some of its targets, it feels... This movie definitely feels like a relic from the Obama era. Like, this honestly... Like, I think there are more pointed episodes of, like, Blackish that, like, speak to today than this movie. Interesting. Daniel, did you have a similar reaction or did you have a different take on it? Yeah, you know, going into this, I was very trepidatious. Uh, JB told me that I would hate it. I went in kind of expecting to walk out incredibly mad. And I, I didn't. I largely just agree with JB. Like, it's a very 
fine family drama uh, with a lot of charming performances, a real lived-in feel to this close-knit or estranged, actually, family in, like, what was it, Boston, right? Yeah. Yeah. Then you get to the satire. And I think where I fall on the movie kind of depends on where I ultimately think the emphasis of this movie is. I think that it is enough of a family drama that I kind of lean more positive towards it. However, yeah, the more I think about the satire, the more I think about how dated it is, the more I feel about how unchallenging it is, the more I I, I get annoyed. And I should say that while I agree with JB that this is definitely like this is a movie that could only exist post Obama, I also kind of think that it is the kind of movie that could only have come out in 2023. What do you mean by that? I mean that in 2023, I feel like cinema has been defined by a sort of reluctance to actively attack the establishment. And in fact, uh, you see a lot of work that adopts anti-establishment rhetoric, but ultimately uses it in order to reinforce itself. See, I... I guess my reaction to it was more that I felt like it tried to do that in a clumsy way. And, and I, I, I feel so odd. Like, I, I don't know if it's like, I don't know what it means to have this take as a white person, I guess is my thought, but I'm kind of like, now, you know how I feel about all the times you invite me to Shiva baby. Like I'm surprised, <laughs> I'm, surprised I'm not like booked for the zone of interest. Well, except Shiva baby's not really commenting on black people. And, and, and this one is commenting kind of on white people and obviously trying to satirize the way like white liberals operate in this space. And I think my thing was like, it felt so clumsy with the way, and it, that's what I think. It feels weird to like complain about how the white, for me to complain about how the white characters are kind of depicted, you know? It's like, oh, I wanted them to be new, more nuanced with these like white people that were like, whatever, you know? And it's like, they're, they're talking about like why they like this kind of art and what they, and how much, how much this really they think speaks to the moment where it's like this really dumbed down type of stuff that like that Monk is criticizing. And it's like, I, I, I felt like they were so like, heavy handed in the way they depicted these white people. Like, see, these are the people that don't get it. You get it. These people don't really get it. And it felt like, all right. So it feels like you're bending over backwards to make sure I get this point where it's like, I kind of get it. And you're like making it really obvious with the way you are writing these folks, you know, and it made that section, it made the whole non family drama section of the movie, which I also like better, like feel like I'm like, okay, it feels like it is like doing the same in some ways. It's like doing the same thing. It is like, kind of criticizing the work within the movie for doing where it's like kind of bending over backwards to appeal to like an audience of like people that are going to pat themselves on the back for like getting this kind of movie. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah, no, no, I I think that it is also beyond just how kind of pat the commentary is calling it satire implies that there's like teeth or an edge. I think also it comes down to form. Like the movie is just not a particularly well-made movie. It's a very comfortable, you know, the way that we talked about the holdovers being a comfortable, cozy movie that's elevated by the direction. This is what happens when somebody tries to make the holdovers and they're not like a great director. Yeah. Core Jefferson is like some TV fucking guy. No, he Uh, like has real bona fides on TV, but like, it's interesting that he got to like direct this one. He never really was a TV director. Well, you say that, um, like, you know, he did like a couple episodes of Watchmen, you know, uh, which is another show that I think kind of like speaks to that trend of trying to comment on, you know, social issues without actually having much to say. Hmm. And yeah, this, 
I, like you look at how this movie is kind of like put together, uh, including the satire, and uh, you just get the impression that this is somebody who is like, you know, kind of got a, a master of the craft. Well, I, I, guess I think like for satire, like everyone likes to use the term biting satire when talking about anything that is satire. But I think to be biting, it's got to like, it needs to feel like, more, I, I, I wanted to feel more personal. I was expecting to feel more personally attacked, I guess, you know? And it's like, it's easy to kind of like shrug it off when you can be like, oh, I'm not like that. Those white people, they're just really dumb. It's yeah. like, and it, it's, I mean, this is I'm trying to think of like an example of like a good example of this. I mean, it's a totally different like subject matter. And it's, it's a movie that I'm pretty sure both of you don't like. But like, I kind of said when Promising Young Woman came out that like one thing I appreciated Ooh. about it. Okay. One thing I appreciate about it was that it like also took aim at people that like just weren't, weren't, weren't not just the rapists, not just the, like the guys that are like trying to do what the characters are to her in the opening scenes, but also like the, the onlookers. Right. And the guy, like, like what the Bo Burnham character kind of turns out to be. Cause like, that is something that's going to like hit a lot more people. Like a lot more people can be like, I'm not the rapist, but a lot more other people can be like, Oh, I, maybe I have been that guy before. And I think that like, and that makes you look inward in a way that I don't think, a movie that like this writes its characters it's satirizing this broadly like really is going to make you do the thing i would say i think like this movie is really just held back by the fact that it's set in the publishing world hmm. now like i'm no i'm no like expert on like what's happening in the literary community but like like in the literary community it just it's not outside the realm of possibility that like this guy um, could write a book and it doesn't have to be about like black issues and just be accepted as like a book, right? Like as he wants it to be, right? Whereas like if this was a movie about like, I think more specifically about like Hollywood or the media, like say Bamboozled, I think then like the targets would be a little bit more pointed. But like, I think by like setting it in this, we were, me and Daniel were comparing this to like Tar in a weird way where like, in like tar you know it's a movie like that's dealing with like cancel culture but in the realm of this like high class world like this like antiquated like totally disconnected from everyday experience for most people right um and yet like that movie still like it, it was kind of pointed in where it was going with whereas like this movie like uh, you know, unlike, say, Bamboozled, which Spike Lee made, like, 20 years ago, around the same time as the book that this film is based off of, like, okay, like, he is deliberately attacking, like, you know, BET and MTV and stuff like that. Like, um, and also the form in which he's doing it, this, like, you know, early DV, uh, DV technology that, like, kind of informs the rawness of, like, the commentary that he's making, Whereas, like, with this film, it's just, like, it's it's too clean, it's too cozy, and it becomes exa exactly the type of thing that it's criticizing. Well, it's, fu it's funny that you mentioned Bamboozled, because I knew that's a movie that means a lot to Daniel. I was wondering, Daniel, did you did you think about Bamboozled as you were watching this and how, like, that was a movie that, like, did this better? I think I was thinking about Bamboozled when I saw the trailer for this movie. When I saw the trailer, I was looking at it thinking, oh, okay, so this is just Bamboozled again? And yeah, that kind of is what it is. I remember you not being much of a fan of Bamboozled, Josh. I went back and looked at my review of Bamboozled. And it was kind of like the inverse of this, actually. I gave it three stars. And I Which was just why, like, yeah, I was thinking about your review while you were talking about like, I don't know, like this just felt like too cozy, too comfortable. Well, I, I said I said my thing, like I liked what Spike was trying to do, but I didn't really like the performances and like the delivery. Well, of that's that. the thing. Well, that's the thing. That's what I like about Bamboozled. The fact that it is so 
deliberately abrasive, not only in the fact that it's shooting mini DV, but like, you know, you get this lead performance where he's like, you know, creating this really affected kind of like caricature of somebody, you know, he's this black, who was it? Uh, which, which Waynes was it? Dam- um, Dam- Damon. Damon. Well, he was like, yeah, putting on this like really weird kind of like, Accent, if I remember yeah. correctly, like a mid-Atlantic kind of white <laughs> accent. But that was meant to sort of portray how far removed this guy is from kind of like the average black experience. You know, it's not just that, you know, happens to be in this kind of cloistered part of society, like in this movie, which never really fully tackles how divorced from the average, ex- from the everyday American experience, somebody who works in the publishing world and who you know is a professor at a prestigious university the film never tackles those sorts of class dynamics it just tells you this guy's a genius he's really good at what he does and this is what he thinks about kind of like the portrayal of black people in literature and i feel like when you don't actually grapple with every sort of point of contention within this person's life and what they're trying to accomplish I think that's when you get to the point where you're watching this movie and you're feeling like, why am I, why is this so comfortable? But like another film that you can kind of compare it to, because this movie has a similar problem, is the movie Dope from like 2015, huh. in which like that like posits a world where like black nerds can't exist in the year of our Lord 2015 or like now 2023. Like again, like his book, like My Pathology, which eventually becomes the book Fuck, which Okay, first off, like none of us are shocked. Like we, like, there's probably been several books entitled that at this point. Already a movie. Yeah, it's one of those things where you just are the whole time thinking, no, nah, like this could totally, like this person could totally have the creative freedom to make what you want, at least in the literary world. Now, if this was in the world of entertainment. Okay, I think some of the stuff, some of the criticisms might hold up a bit. The problem is that Cora Jefferson is a product of the environment that he would be satirizing, which, you know, there's an inherent like contradiction there. You, How could Cora Jefferson really take aim at Hollywood or television or, you know, the studio system when he himself is somebody who writes for HBO? Has, has gotten to do a lot of interesting things that aren't the things he is complaining about in this movie. Yeah, like, you know, like, that's the thing. This movie is stuck, like, 20 years in the past. In 2024, it's like, all right, Blackish has been on the air for 10 seasons, has two spinoffs. We live in an entirely different media landscape. We live in an entirely different kind of realm of Black representation. You should say this book was written in 2001 that it's based on. Yeah, uh, like a, it comes out the year after, you know, Bamboozled. Mm. And so where criticisms that it had in 2001 might have been more charged, uh, you know, even the kind of literature that it's referencing, this sort of like narrative about this pulled from real life that is supposedly a reflection of real raw street experience. Like this was this is not really lighting up the best selling book charts today. Somebody in a discord I'm in pointed out that like these days, the trend would probably be like second generation immigrants kind of like, you know, writing about the dichotomy between being an American and kind of like being a part of a culture that is not American. And not to say that that's like a bad thing, but that's what is going on in the literary world right now. So this movie is so divorced, even from the thing that it's commenting or supposedly commenting on, you know, it just feels like something that doesn't want to contend with the world as it is today. Oh, gosh. I mean, it, it sucks because like, I mean, again, I like a lot of other courts work and I seems like a really cool guy in the interviews I've seen and heard. Uh, but like, I think he would probably think he did do that stuff. You know, it's interesting. I think he would 
who would, who would disagree. I just like I think it it just doesn't hit the same for us, I guess, as it you know did for him and the people that really truly well, love the movie. Of course, it did for him. Like I don't know, like this guy, uh, like I'm gonna assume that if I look him up, like you know, he has a fairly privileged. But I mean, I mean, you know, I don't want to psychoanalyze this guy, I suppose. But I mean, he went to what the College of William and Mary. Like you know, he wrote for late night shows and you know Netflix shows, and he's a you know very high profile guy. His dad, dad, dad is an attorney. His father so. was a his father was a lawyer. You know, like I, I'm not saying that like you know somebody like this isn't capable of making good art i mean like spike lee was very privileged too but like i just feel like a lot of and this gets to a kind of a broader point that i have a, that i think oh, that I he, 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 wrote, he wrote for survivor's remorse too sorry i'm on his wikipedia that's another tv show i like what is what is survivor's remorse it was a show on stars it's like what if it's what if entourage but about like a guy playing in the nba like it's the same idea like you never actually really see him at playing ba playing basketball but like it's like about what's going on around the life beyond that. So guys from like guy moves down with his whole family to Atlanta to play in NBA basketball in Atlanta. And like, here's what's going on in life there. That kind of thing. Produced by LeBron James's production company. Actually, I just didn't realize that was record got his start. So he's literally written for like four shows. I like, so it's, it's, it's like, I, it's just, so, so I was a little let down. I was just kind of like expecting to like this more, you know? Well, the stuff that feels very like television, which is a family drama, I actually think that's the stuff. Well, right. And I was going to, I was going to ask you guys about that too, about just like how, you, how, if you're able to like kind of appreciate the movie on a whole, even if like, because you liked, if you were able to still appreciate the movie for what it accomplished there, even if you didn't like the other stuff. Oh yeah. Like speaking of Blackish, when Tracy Ellis Ross, like when we meet, meet Tracy Ellis Ross, like, and you know, they established this like fun brother sister dynamic between these two siblings as that have been a little bit estranged for a bit. I'm kind of on board that like she's very funny. And then like once it once you fit, realize, oh, this character is going to die and this sets up the chain of events of where Jeffrey Wright is now filling out like her role as sort of like the glue holding the family together and has to get in contact with um, Cliff played by Sterling K. Brown in an Oscar-nominated performance in terms of taking care of their slowly senile mom. Like all that stuff for the most part, except for one false note, I think is pretty good because of the charisma of these uh, characters, of these actors, you know, Wright, Brown, Tracy Ellis Ross, and the girlfriend. Like, they're all pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree. Like, I was surprised by how taken I was watching this family. I will say that, like, you know, much as I'm like, the media landscape has changed at all, like, it, it does feel good to see, like, you know, just a black family just hang out, you know, enjoy each other's company, you know, yeah, not be part of a sort of victim narrative or anything or, yeah, like just that. They're, they're, they have problems, but they're not all about, like, race. It's just a story. Yeah, like, I, I do appreciate that. It's very Huxtables, like. Yeah, which is another thing, is that examples of this have, have existed since, like, the 70s. To be fair to the movie, I suppose, like, yeah, you, I've grown used to seeing like portrayals of black people being rooted in kind of drama porn and woe is I kind of like my life is just struggle, you know, Barry Jenkins. Um, but it's a pretty affluent black family. Like, and the thing is, like, that would be fine if it weren't for the fact that the movie also wants to make a point about black representation and yet never contends with the fact that this is a very, very privileged family. Um, but whatever, like I do enjoy the chemistry that they all have with each other. Sterling K Brown, I found was a lot of fun. Tracy Ellis Ross. Yeah. I yeah. wish she didn't leave. 
Yeah, no, you you really feel her presence, like like she like you know she's only in the movie for like five to ten minutes, but like when she leaves, you really do feel her presence lost because she was just so fun when she was on screen. It felt if the the, the family felt very very uh, incomplete without her in a way. Like it was just like I, for a second, I was like, wait, there's only these two kids left. Damn, that really sucks for uh, you know just for them as a unit because these guys both have like honestly way more issues than it seemed like she had. And, uh, and it was just like, it, you could see why, like she was in some way, she might've been the glue holding them all together. And her, her, I think she made such a big impression in limited screen time that you like really, really felt like how adrift, like both of the other two brothers would be without her. Well, I will say that I think when they first get together, she does point out that she's actually way closer with Sterling K Brown. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, I don't know, a part of me is like, <sighs> I feel like you should have just kept her around. <laughs> like I would have just liked to, if you kept her around, you know, right, she's, she's the family already energy. had, yeah, the family already had enough problems anyway. They made it clear that like, I, I don't understand why she, I, I, she, she was like, she, I think she, oh, she got it. She had a divorce too. That was the thing. Like she was having to pay off her husband, the other, uh, the starting around is having to pay off his ex. So it's like, once the mom dies and they, and they're having in like, they realize like how screwed up the mortgage situation was. It's like, they already have plenty of problems. Like they didn't necessarily, you didn't need the extra drama of her dying necessarily, I guess. And it, no, well, I think you do need her to like die in the sense of just because that was the inciting incident in which like Jeffrey Wright's character, who was like the self-centered like guy focused on his career and kind of estranged from his family's problem. That's how he becomes the person that fills her shoes while she's gone. I, yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, he doesn't grow right into that person, though. Like, we got to kind of, we got to get, the, gotta, we kind of got to get there with him where he's being like, you know, he's being pretty terrible. And I mean, I guess we didn't really quite get into like the ruse that he has to keep up, um, you know, beyond like us talking about our, our, our issues at the satire and uh, using the publishing world as that backdrop. You know, he, ha- he has to go through this movie, like pretending to press or to movie producers or to publishing companies like, oh, no, I'm actually this guy that's like very street and has like a criminal background and all this. And uh, it's like as he is like, you know, achieving success commercially through that to then kind of help with the family's financial problems. He's also like kind of become a bit of douche of, of a douche in the process, even though like he is in some ways, you know, embracing the things that he has looked down upon uh, the Issa Rae character uh, who we didn't even actually mention yet. So, like she is the example of kind of what really frustrates him. Uh, her name is Centara Golden. She has written some kind of book that is of this category of thing that he doesn't like. He also ends up on like a, a panel of like, you know, for an awards committee uh, with her too, because they were looking to diversify. So we get to meet her too, but it's like, he is doing all these things in his second life while also kind of acting like progressively, like more of a piece of shit towards like his new girlfriend and all, and and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm wondering just like how you felt about that part of the movie, Daniel, and if it kind of everything tracked with his character well enough that you like, were still enjoying like the family drama part of it, even as like, you know, some of his actions in the other half of the movie kind of like, you know, led to kind of had some bearing on his, his, on his actions in the other part of the movie. If you, did you think that did, did, did that, did that part of it all work for you? Even if maybe some of the larger messaging, the movie fell flat, you know, I was invested in all the family stuff. Mm -hmm. I was invested in kind of his relationship with, uh, I don't even know who was that actress, Erica Alexander. Yeah, she. A lot of people like really love her. I, I, I can't claim to like. Oh, she was really. on the Cosby Show. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't she also like on like Martin or like Living Single. Like uh, Living Single, I think was what it sounds like a lot of people knew her from. It's not a show I was uh, especially familiar with, but like it seems like someone. Oh, that, like, she was in Earth Mama too from this year. 
Right. But like living single, like main cast, which I mean, and Cosby, oh, two main, main cast is two seasons of Cosby. So yeah. So had like some real moments on TV in the nineties and it's just like, you know, hopped around to a ton of different stuff in the last 25 years or whatever. So cool for her to get a, 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 you know, a role that a lot of people like really, really think she killed. While you're describing like the character of Jeffrey Wright as like this question teacher, teacher, I just realized like, oh, you know, he's kind of playing a similar role as Giamatti in the holdovers. Like these, these are like these very frustrated bitter like middle-aged like writers that are you know working as teachers um taking out like all their failures in life out on the world around them the similarity just kind of struck me the difference being that monk actually has like achieved like a certain measure of success which again i don't think the movie capitalizes on enough um getting to um Issa ray's role Mm -hmm. this is i think where the movie like really loses me like just before the actual ending of the movie, like the kind of climax of the film is a conversation between him and Issa Rae, where she says that the book that he had ghostwritten is a piece of shit. Like it's pandering and it's just portrays black people as suffering and all that. And, you know, he says, yeah, exactly. Like Like she's the one person. (laughs) Yeah. But here's the thing. He says, like your book, She's like, well, actually, my book is pulled from a lot of real life experiences or something like that. And he's like, yeah, but it's still like portraying black people in this way. And it's like the biggest selling thing going on today. And her her response is just, well, it's it's what's selling. You know, it's what people want. And I'm like, all right. So that makes her a hypocrite. Now, if the movie took a stand against that, that might be a bit of a point. It might be a bit of a point against black creators who cater to the demands of the market without actually having anything new to communicate or contribute or anything positive to contribute. It still doesn't do that. This movie steadfastly resists every single possibility that it has to actually take a stand, make a point, have a target to attack. Instead, it just throws out there this idea that maybe, you know, well, you know, should should this black creator be beholden to only making stuff that won't sell or something like that. And then it just never it just never takes a stand because somebody else enters the room. They never finish their argument. And then the movie has maybe the biggest cop out ending I've seen in some time. You know, it's kind of funny in that scene. It's sort of like you're seeing like the Jeffrey Wright character become Issa Rae and then like Court Jefferson in real life become both characters. <laughs> Like the fact that this movie is like nominated for best picture is kind of like <laughs> committing yeah, to like, the and, and the fact that like, you know, it was like, you know, the TIFF audience award winner. The movie does become the thing that it's satirizing. And it does so because ultimately it doesn't it doesn't want to make an actual kind of like concerted attack on anything because that would be too uncomfortable. Yeah, I guess it kind of raises the idea that like, hey, this is fine because he's going to get to support his family and pay for the uh pay for his family's long time made to you know continue to be employed and save the family house and it's like maybe it's it kind of raises the prospector of that like maybe this all being worth it in the end but then at the same time like maybe kind of wants to have it it's cake and eat it too i guess i can kind of see that yeah you know? that's how you get to that ending where it's like instead of actually making a definitive statement you get like this and this is where the movie really like leaves a bad taste in my mouth the movie, like, you know, it seems like he's about to win the award 
And then the movie instead cuts to like, you know, him talking to the director character who was going to make an adaptation of his fake book. You mean, you mean the producer, the Adam Brody guy? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it reveals that like, you know, this entire story that you've been being told was like him retelling the events to this guy. And then it's like, well, how do you want to end it? And he pitches a bunch of endings where like the, you know, the guy's like, no, that's too hokey, which again, when the guy says like, well, I don't want to spoon feed to the audience, like exactly what they're supposed to think. I'm like, all right, well, that's what you've been doing this entire movie. Like this movie is not a difficult movie to untangle, but whatever. Uh, and then like it ultimately ends with him getting shot by police, which is supposed to be like a funny like, you know, see, look, it's this is what the Hollywood people would want this to be. But that's how you're ending the movie. So, yeah, it's just so limp. Glad that you mentioned like earlier they're helping out with, like the make and marry because like it gets to, to me sort of the worst scene of the family drama part, which is basically there's a scene in, earlier in the film where like the Sterling K. Brown character who had just now come out of the closet is visiting his senile mom and like he's dancing with her, it's supposed to be the sweet moment. And then she says like, I knew you weren't a queer or whatever. And that causes him to walk out. And then- moment- Which is a great moment, I think. Yeah, that's not the bad moment. And so then later on in the film, when they're having this wedding set up for their maid, the family comes into the beach house with him forgetting that it's the day of the wedding. And so he's with his like, you know, he's, I think, about to have an orgy with other gay men or whatever. In the moment, like, you know, like uh, Jeffrey Wright tells them, like, all right you know, you, you gotta like leave. Like they're kind of disgusted with him. He's, he might ruin this wedding. And then like the maid comes in and it's like, no, 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 you're, you're family. And like the music, it's all very schmaltzy. And it's just like this very manipulative like moment. It's just complete BS. And then like in the scene right after it's like the wedding and they're all dancing and the mom is dancing with the two gay men he brought home. I, I see that scene and like, yeah, it's a nice moment, I guess. But it also, I think, gets to this movie's impulse to never actively like create conflict, actually let the conflict simmer. Because, you know, if this woman is supposedly so like homophobic, I don't know. She probably wouldn't want to dance with those guys, you know? Well, she, to be fair, she's also senile. So I think it kind of goes like... <laughs> ah, fair enough. But like, I don't know. Like, I just feel like the movie, every kind of point of conflict that it creates, it has to like quash you know it has to pour water on uh because then it becomes the kind of movie that i guess doesn't get nominated for uh best motion picture at the oscars it reminds me a little bit of pauline kale's criticism of uh broadcast news where like again james l brooks another guy who came from sitcom writing she was just kind of mock and like that movie has sort of like this like mockish like you know score and stuff like that um and she was criticizing that movie it's like he hasn't like gotten rid of like his sitcom like instincts and i think with this movie you can tell that like he can't quite shake it like he wants things to be resolved in like a neat comfortable like way both in the family drama and in the satire and the thing is with the satire because he can't figure out a way out of the hole that he's written himself in he instead does the cop-out ending where it's like well this whole thing is kind of like supposed to be kind of fake isn't it and then he just ends the movie and it's like all right so do you have anything to say about that nope drive off into the sunset to like autumn leaves uh which side note um i will say 
very frustrating for me that there is no Thelonious Monk songs in a movie where the main character is named Thelonious Monk. Like, come on. Come on. So- you couldn't have thrown in Blue Monk. You couldn't have thrown up, you know, Round Midnight, you know, one of the classics. Come on. So speaking about the the ending where he drives off, like, how did you feel about, like, I, I actually texted a little bit with JB about this earlier today. Like, how did you feel about the movie producer character who's played by Adam Brody? He meets him in, like, what's a pretty funny scene. They're trying to, like, obviously, again, like, satirize a certain type of Hollywood executive, I suppose. And uh, he ends up, like, you know, kind of being a partner, a partner with him by the end of the movie, if you want to take that version of it as he drove off as being like face value here's where it actually went so he, he doesn't end up working with that guy but i feel like how you read that almost depends on what you feel like they were trying to put across with how they had brody play that character in his first scenes like or is it just a matter of like them not taking still just them not like having anything to say daniel do you have any other feelings on like how they kind of use that character to kind of like keep monk like within this world i suppose if the idea is going to be oh he is going to get them continue to make his art i've got no thoughts on that character jb oh. um you know i like, feel like a lot of people are actually talking about it like at least because it's he's like the white person analog for that second half of the movie whereas it's the people in the publishing world in the first half you know uh, he's got no he's like he's in like two scenes you oh. know one of them at the very end like he's just a device i guess i guess this thing i like that device better though almost it just- well then you're getting to my point that this movie would be a lot stronger if it was not not like set in the publishing world, but in actually right. the world of media. But mm-hmm. then you get to the point that, you know, he can't make a media criticism because he's a product of the media environment that this film exists in. Core Jefferson, I mean, he, he's completely tied up like, a, you know, fucking Spike Lee. Yeah, sure. He makes bamboozled. But when does he make bamboozled? He makes bamboozled at a point where like people have been, if I'm not mistaken, JB, like, you know, that was this was when he was like kind of in his wilderness period or the beginning of his wilderness period. Well, yeah, like where, you know, like he has several like Spike has like several like comebacks and come downs and that was definitely when he was in a downhill uh, yeah and like you know he shoots the moon movie on mini dv you know you could say that there's an artistic effect but like he also just did it because it was cheaper to shoot on mini dv than film you know he kept the cost of this movie if i remember correctly under like a million dollars he had to operate kind of outside the boundaries of normal mainstream cinema because he couldn't make this kind of story. He couldn't say these kinds of things in like, you know, a normal studio film. I said, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose. Uh, oh, you mean Spike couldn't in that one, but I, yeah, I see Spike what couldn't. I, I yeah. See. And then Core Jefferson, you know, in making a movie like this, he has to color within the box. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. It might, it might fall a little flat if he's complaining about all this stuff when, when he's actually getting the chance to make the movie he wants as the director when he's never like directed anything before. Like, it's like he's, he got, I mean, not saying he didn't deserve that opportunity, but like it made, if he, if he, if you made a movie complaining about like being able to operate in that space when you're operating in that space, it'd be, I guess people yeah, might. It, it, yeah. He, you couldn't do it. And then he, he also probably wouldn't want to because he just doesn't have that experience or perspective. Actually, you know, his experience and what led to this movie getting made is actually kind of very similar to the character of uh, Jeffrey Wright plays where basically he had been a staff writer for a lot of TV shows. And then like he was about to create his own TV series had even got greenlit and like they had set up production offices and at the last minute the plug was pulled. And so he kind of just like this movie kind of came about like, you know, he read the book and during the pandemic and then he was just like, I'm going to make this movie that could get greenlit, which is, you know, a very non-threatening movie for Hollywood. And beyond that, the idea that he's like so frustrated by his inability to get the thing off the ground. By this point, he had written for late night shows. He had written for 
Master of None, The Good Place. He won an Emmy for Watchmen. Like Freddy had Station Eleven too. Man, he had good TV taste. I mean, I like yeah. I guess I like Watchmen better than you guys, but like Station Eleven, pretty unusual. I saw the first episode and was so goddamn bored. So, like, I just could not get into it. Yeah, I just it, it speaks to and I, I I've been po- talking about black artists like you know that I remember I watched I had Journal Boy watch the blackening because I wanted to vent about that and then we ended up not being able to get together for that episode. But um, as much as I've been coming up black cinema, I think that this is reflected in like a lot of the kind of cinema of the past year. You know, you look at even something as kind of like on the surface, uh, revolutionary as like how to blow up a pipeline. It's conception of how to tell a story. Granted, that one's built based on a book, but just in terms of like the stories that, you know, you're allowed to tell, that's a movie that, yeah, it's about eco-terrorism and it positions the eco-terrorists as the heroes. But the only way it can conceive of telling the story like that is, okay, well, this is the story of eco-terrorists who come up with the perfect eco-terrorist plan where nobody dies only the the environment doesn't reap any sort of collateral damage it is just a very specifically targeted thing that is absolutely perfect it dramatically works but in terms of the message that it's sending like a more revolutionary work would be something that positions that maybe killing people for this cause is okay maybe it is justified but first something reforms. like that <laughs> first reforms but something like that, well, okay, first reform does get made, but like, you know, something like Spook is sat by the door, I don't know, does. You know what I mean? It certainly doesn't, you know, get the kind of platform that something like this gets. I mean, it's worth noting that this movie is an Amazon release as well. Oh, this one is? Yeah. I genuinely, I genuinely didn't know that. Amazon MGM. Oh, okay, okay. Well, like they own Amazon. I know, I know, Amazon owns a gym. Yeah, hmm. uh, you gave me a lot to chew on. How, how about my pipeline is my second favorite movie of the year? And now I'm wondering. Hey, I now, love. Hey, now, I love now, how you're, to now you're making me feel like a sellout. <laughs> how about, I do like that movie a lot, but like you know, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. I mean, you look at something like, and of course, look. I know everyone knows Barbie is a Barbie is like a toy commercial. Everyone knows that. You know, I'm not I'm not blowing people's minds by saying that, but it is a another example of a mainstream film by a studio that takes the sort of like rhetoric of, you know, we're abolishing the patriarchy or this and that and fits it within the boundaries allowed by kind of establishment politics. Yeah, I just think that this is a problem like widespread throughout media, just the kind of reluctance or inability of creators to sort of actively challenge the status quo with like actual venom and fire. It's just completely dissipated. There's no room for it in the landscape of today. So I guess my last question then is like, is is there like, is this like movie too conceptually far off from what you're talking about for it, this to even be a question worth asking? Or are there a couple of choices you could have done that would have been within something that a movie that had these bones that you think would have attacked the status quo more effectively? Like, look, my expectations for like a movie that is actually... 100% anti-establishment is like far lower but having said that I think this movie is deliberately comfortable in a way that like it still feels almost like out of fashion like today even within the environment that it's being made I think that and I think that's why I think it's sort of set in the world of publishing so that like the targets are you know even further removed yeah uh, yeah, and I guess that goes to what I was saying was that like, I mean, if you maybe take aim at a different kind of white person, it might it might feel like a better attack than it actually is. Um, I just feel like you know, God, I think the people that might be in the positions of power that might be the ones that allow 
that, that gatekeep in the ways that core Jefferson is concerned about. I think they are just more sophisticated than the ones he put on screen. I think it's kind of uh, like, well, I'm not you know sure. It's actually a movie to compare this to actually. And then again, I haven't seen it since it came out, but you know, and also has like the TV show to go along with it, but like something in which like, all right, it's probably wrestling with something more like sharper is like dear white people. Dear white people. Yeah, I, I was thinking about dear white people. I don't know how much I would resonate with me today, but as I remember it, that was a film that, you know, it takes place in a very cloistered, you know, privileged world. But like it does try to kind of examine the different facets of how a black person kind of like relates to that world, how they find their place in a world like that. And I remember that that movie was special to that movie where it's like you're hearing these ar- different arguments from different viewpoints and they feel like they're being equally considered. Uh, Josh, any other final thoughts on American fiction before we wrap up? We didn't really talk about Sterling K. Brown. I mean, we talked about how we liked that corner of the movie, but was there anything else about that, the, the family domestic drama part of the movie that just really resonated with you or just you like just really liked those performances and just thought the characters were more well-written in those moments. Well, yeah, like, I think he comes in and, like, um, I think he really brings life to, like, uh, his moments and stuff like that. What I just kind of thought of is, like, it's sort of like him playing the same character from Honk for uh, Honk for Jesus. Because um, in that movie, <laughs> like, closeted gay, uh, gay pastor. <laughs> um, so it's almost like the sequel to that movie. It's like I came home to his family. I will say that even though the movie, I don't also... I also just don't consider it a very funny movie, you know, uh, considering this guy is written for like he's written comedies and shit like this is not laugh out loud funny. However, there is a huge a warmth to like those sorts of moments that, you know, he shares with Sterling K. Brown that like they, they managed to sell these lines as like kind of like intimate moments between like family members and such that. Yeah. You know, you can't help but smile. Like the funeral sequence, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And the one funny line, the one line that actually got a laugh out of me was um, when uh, they go to dinner and Coraline is introduced to the mom and the mom says, I am so glad that you're not white. And she leans in and she's like, me too. <laughs> like that, that got me, you know, but everything else, uh, both within the family stuff and certainly within the, the, the satire, just laughless for me. Yeah. I'm um, actually, Josh, the one thing I would know is that, you know, we're ta- doing this podcast, like the day of the Oscar nominations, mm-hmm. I would say out of like the 10 nominees, this is probably like my least favorite, like, especially intellectually, the more I think about it, because I don't like say like Maestro where like, I think moment to moment in this movie, especially the family drama is more like enjoyable to watch. It's just like the satire is just so dumb that like, I can't, <laughs> I can't wrap my hands around it. So this movie also got like a surprise, like score nomination for um, best uh, original score nomination. Yeah, I can't really say the score stuck with me. Yeah, like the score is fine. It's jazz. I think there's other stuff I would have put over it this year, but it's fine. It's jazzy, you know. I feel like I feel like this score should have been a little more like I don't know. You could do like a dissonant jazz again. The guy's named Thelonious Monk. I'm not saying use Thelonious Monk music throughout, but like you could have kind of paid homage to that sort of dissonance. But again. Thelonious Monk himself, not a comfortable musician. There was like a Twitter thing uh, earlier this or or late last year. I saw a bunch of white people talking about how much they disliked Thelonious Monk's music because of how dissonant and abrasive it is. You know, very ironic that that is the main character of this movie. 
yeah, I don't have a ton to add myself. Again, I, I, I think I might have harped on the negatives too much myself. I, I I'm kind of with Daniel and Josh though overall, and that like I, there were there were plenty of moments I enjoyed when it was like when when the movie was more like focused on the family and. I and and I and I did kind of appreciate, as like I said, maybe in a way you guys didn't. The the Adam Brody character, I just thought he was on a wavelength that I think would have worked better for the rest of the messaging of the movie. But it just uh, it wasn't with him long enough for it to really kind of save that corner of the movie for me. But at the same time, like I think there's plenty of worth watching. You know, if you just want to go enjoy the performances and in, enjoy that corner of the movie, even if the other stuff eh, didn't work for me quite as much. I will say, still a better movie than Killers of the Flower Moon. No, it's not. No, still it's... a better movie than Killers. That's of the a Flower wild take. Moon. Yeah, what can I say? You know, I think the killers also is, I mean, not to make this the killer of the flower moon podcast, but I do think that that's another movie that is sort of reflective of the more frustrating trends that I've been talking about. Hmm. Okay. But he calls himself out on it, which you might consider. I hate that about. shit. That's yeah, that is that they have this movie. These two movies have the same ending. <laughs> not, I would not say I would these not two movies have the same goddamn ending, the same sort of like, Hey, well, what can you do? <laughs> like I fucking, I fucking hated that. I hate that. We've given fucking martin scorsese credit for just saying yeah i guess i shouldn't have made this movie <laughs> fuck you uh i am i agree marty, with you. i still like you um, and look marty if you want if you want my contributions to your next movie i'm available like i'll, I'll act I'll, I'll, I'll pa whatever you want but yeah i didn't like killers of the flower moon you're not right. gonna be tiktok great great note to end on but how about anything you have watched recently that you have like daniel that you'd like to plug before we sign off uh well you know i've been uh slam dance has kind of gotten into full swing well i think it, yeah it is in full swing right tease, now tease anything you saw there i did see slide which is the new film from bill plimpton uh who is a kind of legendary animator who's been kind of i think it's more of like an independent guy a lot of his stuff is uh self-produced and he animates entirely himself uh, slide is a sort of uh, it takes place in like a 40s logging town that is the unscrupulous mayor decides that he's going to turn it into a resort to attract this uh, big shot Hollywood producer, which kicks off a lot of tensions within the town. And around the same time, a mysterious stranger with a guitar rolls in and, you know, it is very much like a kind of American folklore, tall tale sort of thing, but with his visual style, which is very surreal, very abrasive, very, honestly, you look at it at first and you're like, this looks ugly. You know, it's very crude animation. You see the lines sort of all over these drawings, you know, either not animating on ones or twos, or he's animating on like fours, five, sixes, like dozens. Like he is it, it, like at some points, it's just still shots without even the, the mouths being animated as the characters are talking. And yet I feel that the effect is that it sort of breaks down the kind of paradigm that you usually expect to see these sorts of very classic tropes existing in. It ends up making these sort of very well-worn kind of standard American folkloric tropes. It breathes, it gives them a new sort of life. You accept them on their own terms. And once you kind of get swept up in it, I, there's nothing, I thought it was absolutely incredible. Really recommend that. It's entirely self-produced. Like he's the only credited animator on it. The, the additional crew is like, under a dozen people doing like sound work and such really impressive stuff i really liked it i can't recommend it enough josh anything you've been watching recently you would like to shout out for the listeners all right um started the new year um you know i actually haven't seen any like 2024 movies yet but um i did hop onto the criterion channel they have like a james gray 
um, retrospective of all his movies set in New York. And Gray is actually a filmmaker. I've been cold on like some of his later period stuff. So I was like, all right, let me give him a chance. Let me see his early stuff. It's like crime films. And uh, the one that I really, really enjoyed is The Yards. Um, and, you know, like with Gray, like I think with his latter period of his career, this is how I divide it. The filmmaker that looms large over his movies is Francis Ford Coppola. The latter part of his career, he's kind of like trying to make his apocalypse now with Ad Astra and Lost City of Z. Lost City of Z. His early crime films are very indebted to The Godfather while being like their own thing. Like, you know, it's funny in like two different movies, he casts like as the patriarch uh, member of the Corleone family, whether it's James Caan and uh, The Yard. So a very good, subtle James Yard performance and um, The Ball in uh, We Own the Night. But like in the yards, you know, you know, I think what he brings to it is like this texture of like the Coney Island like community, which uh, I kind of know a little bit about just because my sister lived in um, that Russian area. It's getting into like almost like Sydney Lumet territory about like the inner workings uh, and the corruption of like the metro transit system and. It's pretty like Phoenix and Wahlberg are pretty good in it. Those kind of jarring that like Phoenix is supposed to be Latino. Um, he's kind of actually sort of playing Benicio del Toro in the movie, but it's a very good like family drama, and I enjoyed it. Did you watch We Own the Night yet? Yeah, I did. I was. So that that's all, that, 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 that's also Wahlberg and Phoenix too, right? Yeah. I think out of his three crime films, that's the one I like the least. Like, I like Little Odessa, his debut film. Mm -hmm. But, like, We Know the Night, which is fine. I think it's okay. But I think I think those three films, like, he's sort of telling the same story in just a different way. And then by the time he gets to We Own the Night, I can see why he, like, made this shift. Because after that, it's Two Lovers, like, his first non-crime film. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm a big James Gray guy. I'm... I'm unlike you like pretty through and through so i appreciate you finding something to appreciate in oh in yeah SF. now I, I i'm pro great than i was it's also funny that like the yards is also somewhat autobiographical form and it's like his dad got into some shit so it's mm -hmm. funny to like think about you know God, what, what, what was the one he had come out two years ago um uh, armageddon time yeah, it's just funny the depiction of the dad there and then being like, oh, so that guy was into some illegal shit, huh? He he, he acts all holier than now in that movie. Um, but, <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, it, there are different points in his life, I guess. Um, but like, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, my, uh, my, uh, I guess my only recommendation at the moment, I guess, as far as stuff I've seen really recently that I would recommend, not a lot on movies, honestly, because I'm still... I mean, I haven't seen a ton lately besides this and um, that I haven't already done a podcast on besides this and uh, Nyad, which I don't think I'm going to do a podcast on. Uh, so I'll say, uh, speaking of crime stuff, I, I'm digging the new season of True Detective. I, I'm with everyone that thinks it's probably through two episodes, at least, is like on, on the level of, you know, the closest thing that they've gotten to recapturing the magic of the first one, except it's mm -hmm. a much different setting, which I appreciate, uh, is where they're basically in the Arctic in Alaska. And I when I heard the blog line for the season where it's like, oh, some people uh, disappear off of like a research facility in the wilderness of Alaska, like I thought it was just going to be all set in the wilderness, which I wasn't as into, but it actually has a town that's very interesting town. It's, it's a nice backdrop and also like literally in a part of Alaska where it's just always dark as opposed to how a lot of parts of Alaska it stays light to like 11 o'clock. And that's an interesting disorienting way to watch it. It might be leaning into some other supernatural elements that they're hinting at in the second episode. I don't know if that's totally my favorite way for it to possibly go, but I'm really enjoying it so far. And, and I mean, just you almost forget how 
great of an actress Jodie Foster can be because she hasn't done it so much in recent years. So cool to see her lead something like that and get a lot of uh, interesting supporting performances too. Uh, guys, uh, before we wrap up, uh, Josh, where can people find you on Letterboxd or whatever social media you want to plug? Um, my Letterboxd is JKB1626, and my Instagram is Brownfield Collective. Daniel, it's uh, Felonious Funk on Letterboxd, correct? Felonious Funk on Letterboxd, I write for Disappointment Media, which, by the way, I forgot to mention, I got my first uh, pull quote uh, for a trailer. Um, oh, was wow. the trailer for uh, Hundreds of Beavers. What is that? Which right. was Hundreds of Beavers was the movie that was like my favorite new release of last year, but it was a mm-hmm. festival release. It actually is coming out. Uh, honestly, it should be out by the time this comes out, I think. Like, I think it comes out February 9th on digital, but it's also doing a theatrical tour. It's a silent kind of uh, indie comedy about a logger in like 1700s France who, you know, goes from being a drunkard to the most successful fur trapper uh, in the, you know, vast expanse of the Canadian wilderness. Um, it is incredibly silly, it, like a pretty much like a live action cartoon so much fun watching this movie was an absolute delight on my laptop and i look forward to going down i'm going to be driving down i'm going to uh in uh march 9th i'm going to be driving oh. down to west palm to go see this movie. Well, you told me that and i thought I, I i had no idea it was a movie i thought it was like some band that you liked or something you're coming to see a show i had no, no, no idea no, 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 no movie yeah this was this would have been my number one last year like a bullet like no contest i think it's my favorite movie for the 2020s so far uh honestly you know maybe maybe 20 okay maybe not this, this whole century because you know you have stuff like war horse and undisputed 3d redemption but um this it is up there like this is certainly i think yeah i think i'd be comfortable saying it's the best comedy of the, the past 20 years wow. so yeah like i cannot recommend it enough uh if you're gonna be if for all the uh, rewind heads who um you know are just crazy about meeting the frequent guests i'm gonna be there <laughs> march 9th at the uh i forgot what the the paragon theater i think it is okay i know exactly what that is sun and stars fest interesting okay we'll talk about this off- offline uh yeah as usual you can find me on twitter and letterbox at josh renovoy j-o-s-h-j-u-r-n-o-v-o-y podcast twitter is at ruin movie pod podcast emails through on moviepod at gmail.com coming up next on the podcast it, depending on when daniel and i get all these edited it might just be another episode with daniel because i think we're still going to try and do an episode on the beekeeper and the book of clarence so it might be that but i will also be recording stuff on all of us strangers in the zone of interest at some point hopefully in the next couple weeks so everyone keep an eye out for that thanks again to josh and daniel for joining me and we'll see you next time <laughs>